welcome to the Active Listening Podcast. I'm your host, Arianna, and I have the great pleasure of unearthing the stories and thoughts of others. Today, we get to hear from Salem Debs. Salem was born in Imam Jordan and grew up around Toronto. She's a single mom, active in the community, fighting for anti-racism, owns a yoga studio, and teaches wellness. She's a singer, poet, and writer. Salem has created several workshops where she speaks about anti-racism and provides insight to those searching. Salem is not staying silent about the need for justice. She is making her voice known and challenging the status quo. She is being brave with her story and pushing back against societal norms. I'm thrilled to talk with her today, but this is a challenging topic. In fact, it may cause feelings of discomfort and bad vibes to bubble to the surface unexpectedly. Perhaps you've never thought about how racism is impacting your world or how you're a part of the problem, and that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's okay. Let's sit with the discomfort and allow it to change us. Maybe it will provide greater insight or the words to say when you are in tough conversations with others. My desire with these conversations is to share perspectives and the stories of others while encouraging you to think for yourself. May we see each other as complete humans regardless of differences, and while we're at it, may we continue to love well. So please join me for this conversation on anti-racism. Challenge the systems. Well, welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Ariana, and I have the great pleasure today of talking with Salam Debs. Salam, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so glad to have you here and to hear your story. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. So for the listeners who don't know who you are, you are a lot of things, and I'm going to list them now. <laughs> you are a mom, an activist, and a yoga and wellness professional singer, speaker, poet, and writer. You were born in Amman, Jordan, and grew up in Regent Park in Scarborough. You do a lot of things in the community, and you are very active in helping people to understand what it means to be anti-racist and to create more awareness around that and sharing your story and helping people understand that. So that is wonderful, and thank you so much for the work that you do in that. What else are you working on currently well, I think, um, yeah, thank you for the introduction. Um, I was born in Amman, Jordan. I am Ethiopian, Canadian, um, and I am, uh, was grew up in Regent Park and in Scarborough and also in Kitchener-Waterloo and, and certain uh, communities. But what am I working on? Um, <laughs> working on creating boundaries and yes. working on caring for my own well-being uh, I mean, there's always work happening in the background and speaking or uh, facilitating workshops. I have my anti-racism cohort that started recently, and we've been on a journey together over the last couple of weeks. And um, so there's a lot happening. Also, a yoga studio owner and teaching yoga and meditation, um, managing owning a studio, a mother also of a 16-year-old boy. You are busy. Yeah, it's a busy and full-time so I think for me, um, you know, work is always happening and I'm always involved in so many different community things that also never get added to the list because although I teach anti-racism and anti-oppression and I, um, you know, manage and own a yoga studio and teach yoga and meditation, there's also so much that happens in community where you're supporting community uh, initiatives and a part of all these things are happening in the background that often people don't see. So yeah, most of my evenings are busy and packed, 
most. Yeah. Uh, so I try to keep my weekends aside for really caring for my own well-being. That's good. Yeah. And life is about so much more than the different titles that we have placed on ourselves or that other people place on ourselves too, right? So creating the space to be able to have the time to just be you is very important and valuable. So that's great. I'm glad that is something that you were working on. And I think that's something that we all need to get better at. Absolutely. So my desire really for this conversation is to create a space for your story and your experiences and for you to be heard without me needing to speak too much. <laughs> I guess kind of in the very act of saying, oh, I want to create a space for you to elevate your voice. That's like the very thing that we actually are talking about here too in a lot of ways is that me as a white person needs to do something in order for you to be heard, right? So that all aside, this may be a difficult conversation for some people to put themselves in the understanding position of. And I hope that in our conversation that we can help create a space for people to understand and that it brings into relief a little bit some things that people maybe didn't see clearly before. So let's jump into your story. And I want to hear a little bit of what your origin story is and what life was like for you growing up and how that helped to shape your view of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to start firstly also by just saying that, um, that I live and work on the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Um, and I'm situated on the Haldeman track, the land promises six nations, and which is uh, basically six miles on, on, on each side of the Grand River. And, you know, the important part for me, I think, to start there is I think it's important for us to understand that um, understanding our social location, understanding like who we are, our positionality, and our relationship to the land, I think for me as a Black Ethiopian, queer, mother, um, you know, cis woman, that so many parts of who I am today and my identity and why I do this work and the barriers that I have faced have really shaped everything <laughs> that I that I do today. And so um, when I think about Indigenous sovereignty, I think about Black sovereignty and I think about Black freedom. And I guess that takes me to, you know, growing up and being raised by two Black um, Ethiopian parents, mother and father, who, uh, you know, grew up in Ethiopia, had to flee Ethiopia um, by foot due to civil unrest to Sudan. From Sudan, they moved to Jordan, Amman, Jordan, where my father was really, um, really pursuing a academic, uh, you know, pathway and has multiple degrees and that was really his focus and when they came when I was born in Amman Jordan and they came to Canada to so-called Canada that um, really um, they divorced upon arrival and uh, I experienced and my parents I experienced through my mother really the disparities that come with being in a black body in a body that's seen as other as immigrants as you know seen as not part of the norm and um, really living in disinvested communities with my single Black mother. We lived in Regent Park, which is a very disenfranchised and disinvested community in Toronto. We lived in Scarborough. And during that time, we were so fortunate to have so many rich cultures and people and beauty and music and um, really was such an incredible part of my identity and my, my lived experience. 
And we were living in communities who are disinvested in, oppressed, um, marginalized. And so um, I think that's a big part of, you know, who I am today as I, we moved to Kitchener-Waterloo, where my mom thought that she was, you know, saving me and creating um, a safer community for us. But really, we just lived in the same disinvested communities that exist in every community um, of Black, Indigenous, and racialized people, and especially a lot of Black and racialized folks. And, um, you know, I think facing a lot of racism, being streamlined into lower uh, grades in high school, um, experiencing sexual abuse at the age of nine, and then also sexual assault at the age of 16, and having to come face to face with so many systems, and then having my son at the age of 21, being a single mother and raising him on my own, um, going through a divorce and all the things that happened years later. Um, I am kind of, sometimes it is like, I just need to write a book because I don't, I don't even yeah. understand how I um, survive so many things and watch my mom survive um, the daily abuse of microaggressions of cleaning, you know, white people's homes, cleaning yeah. hotels and going through what she went through. So I think my life is really, when I tell my story, it's a dichotomy between so much beauty, artist, artistry, music, poetry, um, singing, expression, and then also quite a bit of trauma. Mm. Yeah. And that really shapes who you are for both positive and negative, but it's all now a part of you, even if we wish that those stories didn't have to be. Um, have you been able to find a sense of community here, even though it's not one that's easily suited or that's easy to find? When we say here, are we saying Kitchener Waterloo? Oh, yeah. We're saying like here as in Canada when you were in Toronto and here in Kitchener because you moved from one area trying to find safety and a sense of community to Kitchener trying to find that as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think ironically, you know, what was considered safe and what was considered, um, you know, a more proper community to live in was, you know, the, the goal was to move into white, whiter communities. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, I always had a real rejection to that unconsciously, I think growing up because the communities I grew up in, although they were disenfranchised, I was surrounded by black and, you know, racialized and people of color and felt so deeply supported in many ways too. So there is, um, you know, I think there's an unlearning there that I had to do. Um, and actually left Kitchener-Waterloo after high school and told my mom, I'm out, I can't do this. <laughs> I need I need my people. Yeah. And actually moved back to Toronto. And then coming back to Kitchener-Waterloo and raising my son here, you know, I think I have found my community for sure. I found a community of folks who are really, passionate about human rights, passionate about um, activism, passionate about really showing up in a way in which we are culturally aware, in which we are vibrant. So yes, it's taken me a very long time to get here, but I don't think that I really truly found my community until I actually really, um, really connected deeply into my own Black identity. Mm -hmm. And also until I started to do a lot of my own healing work. Right. 
and was able to like articulate and speak to the ways in which systems have really dramatically impacted my life chances. Yeah. This is, I feel like until you can ask hard questions of yourself and know what you need, you don't actually even know what you need from community either, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then being in this community that is predominantly white and in a world, in a society that is predominantly white, how do you stay true to yourself and to your beliefs, to your goodness when you're met day after day with people and systems that are perpetuating this problem of racism? Yeah, well, actually, Ariana, um, black and brown people are the global majority. Yeah. And so I think it's really important for us to understand that part. Um, and though whiteness is considered every, the benchmark to which everything is measured by. Mm -hmm. So whether you're in Ethiopia, you're in Kenya, whether you're in India or you are in uh, Cambodia, whether you are in, you know, Toronto or you're in New York. Um, it's the realization that whiteness has been considered the benchmark and it's to that the detriments of black, indigenous and racialized people and the oppression of black, indigenous and racialized people globally. Um, and so, sorry, the second part of your question was, Anna, go ahead. Yeah, no problem. Um, it was, how do you stay true to yourself and your beliefs when you're met day after day with this? It's taken me a long time to get here. I think that um, I used to have a group of, um, I used to feel like I lived in two different worlds. So I had my black and racialized friends that I was really close to and family. And, you know, I had this identity and a way of being in the world that I felt was really authentic in many ways. Um, and then I had a couple, you know, really close white friends that I used to go to cottages to and um, that I used to be able to kind of assimilate with. And I was considered more of the black token, token black friends. And, um, and I knew how to really code switch and shift and transform who I was in the different spaces that I, that I am in, I've been in. And so it took me a really long time to stop code switching, to realize that that was violence, that that was mm -hmm. abuse. Um, and that when I did start to speak up in those spaces and share with, you know, a lot of my white um, female friends that, you know, the things that they were saying were racist, that were harmful or homophobic, um, that I was met with a lot of tension. I was met with a lot of anger. I was met with a lot of white violence. And so it took me a while to have to kind of move through those relationships, move out of those relationships, be more authentically myself, even in my black community and my racialized communities and with whoever I'm in. So no matter what space I'm in, I am myself, but it took me a long time to get to that place of healing, of unlearning, of decolonizing myself. And now I feel like it doesn't matter who you are, whatever space I'm in, I will be me unapologetically, mm -hmm. um, which means, yeah, you know, there's pushback. Um, it's not easy. And but I think it's, you know, me living my most authentic life now. Yeah. Do you miss those friendships? Yeah, I do. And I had to mourn them because there were beautiful. Some of those people were in my life for decades. And yeah. they were beautiful and impactful relationships. And it actually was really difficult because on one hand, these women had been, white women had been there for me in, in such impactful ways. And we had so many amazing experiences together. 
But on the other hand, um, I experienced a lot of violence and a lot of harm and abuse Mm -hmm. in those spaces. And so I realized after a while that the only way that I could stay in friendship with them was if I put myself into a pretzel Mm -hmm. and lived inauthentically and really started, I had to hide my blackness. I had to hide that part of my identity and I had to pretend that they weren't white when really, you know, they were, they were saying a lot of things that a lot of white women say. Mm-hmm. Um, and as my anti-racism and anti-oppression work continued to really, you know, level up and increase, it became increasingly less, I had, I couldn't exist mm-hmm. in those spaces anymore. Yeah. Um, so, so although I miss them, what I don't miss is how I had to be inauthentic um, and betray myself in those spaces. Yeah. As I have heard you say before that the, a big component of this was when last year you did the BLM March and you helped plan that and you hosted that. And there was a lot of falling out around that once you shared how passionate you were about this with your friends and how much you cared and they just didn't understand. And when I heard you say that, I was just, I, it made me sad for you. It made me sad for everybody who can't be the full expression of who they are because of simply the color of their skin or their culture or their upbringing or what deeply matters to them. And to have somebody say something about you makes me not comfortable and to the point that I can't be with you anymore. I'm sorry. That's not something that you wish on anybody. And to have to experience the loss of friendship because you're being your true self is not an easy thing to go through. And like you said, the grief that comes with it, I can only imagine. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to ever understand that. But thank you for sharing. And I did have the pleasure of experiencing that march last year. And to be marching alongside brothers and sisters who were taking up the call. And it was such an incredible experience to be there and to see people from all different walks of life and all different marginalized groups coming together to work towards unity in some sense, to to show that we support you even if we don't understand. And... I'm I'm glad that I could be a part of that, even though I didn't at the time understand the full story and the full impact of what you were actually doing. Um, it has helped to give me a jumping off point in some regards to greater understanding. So thank you for what you did in that in that work. Um, yeah, and you, you were talking too about about those friends who didn't understand, and in the process of trying to communicate with them and and experiencing the fallout of those relationships. I am curious if you learned how to communicate better with people like that in going through that, and if perhaps we have or I have people in my life who don't understand either, how we can communicate in a way that helps to bring understanding or if it's a matter of we need to let them go and continue pushing forward with what matters and what is important and what is true. I wonder if you could speak more to that. 
Yeah, thanks so much for for the acknowledgement um, around friendship loss. So definitely, there has been a lot of grief on top of a lot of other grief also that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I think that the information and the education that is out there around how to build and you know how to really understand inequities, the the information and the way in which we you know, can gain so much knowledge around anti-Black racism, around anti-ingenuity. Um, I really don't believe that there is an excuse for not building this awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for a long time, you know, what we've been told as Black people, for example, or Indigenous people is, you know, say it nicer. If you just communicated it nicer, then I wouldn't have gotten angry. If you had yep. just not said that, I wouldn't have gotten angry. Um, you know, if you just, uh, you know, talk to white people in this way, maybe they'll understand. But the reality is, you know, where have we heard that before? What other groups of people say that? I think we, in general, as women, which have yep. very unique experiences. So I do not want to generalize women. We are very different in the way we experience the world. But, um, you know, we know what it feels like as women to hear in spaces with men. Well, maybe she deserved it. Maybe if she said this Mm -hmm. and she spoke this way, it wouldn't have happened to her. Maybe if she dressed this way, it wouldn't have happened to her. Maybe, you know, all of these ways in which women's bodies are managed, controlled, surveilled, gaslit, constantly mm-hmm. in in our own sense of advocacy um when really at the end of the day it really is up to those who are in a position of privilege who benefit from whiteness or benefit from you know patriarchy or so forth to really build that awareness and ask those themselves those questions because otherwise what happens is you know this idea that somehow white folks are not mature enough are not strong enough, are not resilient enough to take the feedback and insight and information and education around racism, Mm -hmm. you know, just perpetuates this idea of fragility when white folks aren't fragile. And in fact, when we think about colonialism and we think about the history of enslavement, uh, residential schools. They conquered the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not conquered, exploited. Well, did everything wrong. Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes we think of conquering or we think of pioneering in this positive way, but actually it was a form of violence and subjugation and exploitation and, um, and oppression. And so, so that framework has to change that, Mm -hmm. that recognition and understanding of asking black indigenous and racialized people to communicate in a way that keeps you comfortable is violence and is harm in and of itself. Yeah, and that's something that I can't seem to wrap my mind around is why white people actually want to appear to be weak and fret. Like, I don't understand why people don't want to understand because, yes, we're using it in a way to hurt people so that we actually, in the end, feel stronger, which is just so dumb. (laughs) Well, if you think about it, it's actually... uh a mechanism, right? So it's the ways in which white folks get to maintain the status quo because otherwise um, the, what needs to happen is a sense of accountability to avoid accountability, which is taking ownership, which is maybe the accountability looks like 
you know, I, yes, I wasn't present for slavery or residential schools or for segregation, or I haven't created the policies, but I have benefited from white supremacy. I have mm-hmm. benefited from a racist society and I'm still contributing to the, to the construct and the structure of this racist society by doing nothing, by being silent, by, um, you know, choosing to be good rather than to be better to do better. And so all those ways in which one is complicit, it's hard to look at that. Absolutely. However, until white folks start to do that work for themselves and start to do that excavation and self-examination, interrogation and healing work for themselves, you know, we will continue to have these really disconnected and disembodied conversations around maintaining white comfort. Yeah. And a lot of times in my conversations with fellow white folks, it's, they don't understand the difference between white privilege and say educational privilege or financial privilege and things like that. And they equate it to all be the same thing, which it very much most of the time is. Um, But a lot of people say, well, I don't have the same experiences as this person of color. So how can you say that I am therefore racist? (laughs) are hard conversations to have, but they're necessary to have talking to people who are like me and uh, show them, okay, um, maybe look at it through somebody else's eyes for a minute and practice empathy a little bit. Cause if you experienced what somebody else did, then maybe you would see the world a little bit differently. You have said a quote before, and you alluded to it a little bit too, when you were talking about the way that women are affected by this. Um, but you said that the way black women feel with white women is the way that white women feel with misogynistic men. And wow, that's that's a big one to take in. Can you expand on that even further and maybe share a little bit of what it means to suffer at the hands of white tears and especially for white women? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, what this conversation that you, this quote that you brought up um, really speaks to intersectionality, Mm -hmm. right? So intersectionality um, is coined by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, and she was a lawyer and a civil rights activist who basically spoke to the ways in which, you know, the prism for seeing the ways in which various forms of inequality often operate together and exasperate each other. Um, And so basically what Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw spoke to as a Black woman is the ways in which, for example, um, you know, the ways in which Black men have, or the ways in which Black women, rather, experience not only sexism, we experience sexism and patriarchy and violence, but we also experience racism. And often when we think about society and we think about how, you know, violence and oppression and racism show up, um, you know, and we think about feminist movements in order to look at the ways in which women experience harm, what happens is um, white women are often centralized in the ways in which we understand um, advocating for women's rights, right? We think about the ways in which the Me Too movement was co-opted and stolen and um, from a black woman, Tarana Burke, and made a kind of centralized white experience. We think about how the women's movement was actually built out of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. We think about the ways in which historically 
Black women have experienced, of course, harm at the hands of men, um, but also have experienced a deep amount of harm in, um, in relationship to white women because of the ways in which as white women were fighting for power and trying to be, for example, in positions of power in relationship to white men, um, often what happened was white women perpetuated the same paradigms of patriarchy, of colonialism, and of racism. And so Black women are at the mercy of that. And what happens when a Black woman, for example, says to a white woman, hey, when you said that thing that was really harmful, and a white woman bursts into tears, Mm -hmm. we have to understand that historically, that those tears could result in Black life, a Black person being lynched, dying, Mm -hmm. being incarcerated, being in prison. We saw that with uh, the central um, in Central Park with the uh, white woman, I'm forgetting yes. her name right now, Amy Cooper, and Amy Cooper and the ways in which she knew that she could weaponize her tears and her sense of seemingly white fragility in order to incarcerate or in order to um, position herself as frail yeah. and as innocent. And so I think it's important for us to understand that um, you know, Black women are often masculinized. Black women are often seen as criminal, as angry, mm-hmm. as aggressive. And white women are often presented and positioned as innocent and sweet and to be cared for and to be safe. And we think about policing. Policing is developed in order to protect white families right. um, from Black and Indigenous and racialized families and to keep their community safe. So it's very complex yeah. and it's complex. But then when we come into a boardroom or we come into a parent council meeting or we come into these spaces together, all of those complexities and nuances and that behavior shows up mm-hmm. in the ways in which Black women's voices are silent. Yeah. And you're a mom, right? So you're raising a son in this experience of the world. And that's going to be very different than me raising my son with this ex- his experience of the world. And how are you teaching your son to carry himself and to be proud of his heritage and to be proud of who he is and to be the full embodiment of his self while also learning how to be in the world and what it means when something happens or he's confronted by somebody and and learning from your experiences just like you learned from the experiences of your mom and that carried on into your understanding of the world too yeah how are you fostering that for your son mm-hmm. well you know what I've never had I've never had the privilege to not have to foster that into my son yeah. you know from the minute that he was born And there was a sense of hyper safety that I had for him. Um, And then as he got older and, you know, I remember when he was four years old and he said to me, mommy, I wish you didn't call me Jaleel. I wish you called me Zach. Mommy, I Mm. wish my skin was white. I wish it wasn't black or brown. Mommy, I wish my hair was straight like my white friends instead of, um, you know, curly. And so I think it's important for us to understand that I've never had not had, I've never had the privilege to not educate him. I've had to instill that into him for him to learn embodied self-love and integrity 
and dignity, but also for his survival, that he needed to understand the way systems work and the ways in which people judged him and stereotyped him and looked at him. I had to deal with that in the school system, dealing with teachers who tried to criminalize him and tried to make him seem as aggressive. I had to do that with speaking out and advocating to principals and, you know, really going to really far lengths in order to keep him protected and safe. And as he gets older, I've had to deal with, you know, him dealing with folks asking, you know, non-Black youth asking him for N-word passes and using derogatory slurs towards him. I've had to, you know, and as he gets older now and he's 16 and now he's going to start driving, which should be an exciting time. Mm -hmm. I have to deal with the fear and the worry and the hypervigilance that I have to teach him for his survival on what he needs to do when he is out and driving and how he has to interact with police in order for him to come home safely. Yeah. Um, because I've experienced it. I've experienced what it feels like to be thrown against a police car, um, handcuffed face down and watch my another Black person in front of me who was with me thrown to the ground with six police officers in their back and be violently attacked and go to jail for doing nothing. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, it's important for us to understand that it's real. Yeah. Um, the impacts that and ways in which we have to be hypervigilant for our babies are really real. The ways in which Black children are adultified and seen as yeah. older than they are and treated as different. And I have to remind the world that he's still my little boy and have to constantly ensure that. Um, yeah, it's a lot. I would say that our dinner table conversations <laughs> are different than white folks dinner yeah. conversations since he was young. Like we talk about politics. We, t- I, we talk about the world. We talk about feminism. We talk about how he can be emotionally intelligent. We talk about all the things um, and he doesn't have the privilege to be mediocre, that he has to work 10 times harder than his peers in order for him to really truly succeed in in society. Yeah. And that just makes me think, like you said, (laughs) he has to work really hard to not be mediocre. And it's like, we have the privilege to do nothing as white people, as white folks. At our dinner tables, we, we have interesting conversations, but not with the levels of nuance and understanding that has to come for you. And my son is given life on a silver platter if he wants it to be. And I, I have to be aware of our place. And I just can't even wrap my mind around how, how much this actually affects people beyond me sometimes. And how big what policies and systems, how big they are and how far they reach and how many people they actually affect beyond just my kitchen table and beyond my kid going to school. And one thing that he may say can have a ripple effect on so many others. It's a big responsibility for me. I can only imagine what it is like for you as a mom raising your son. And it sounds like you're doing a really good job. <laughs> well, he he's annoyed with me for sure at times. This poor guy, poor guy has to hear a whole lecture every single <laughs> evening on, you know, on all the things. Yeah. But I think, you know, the opportunity for white parents is to really look at, 
you know, I'm, you know, white parents always ask me, how can I teach my children? How, what should I teach my children? I mean, just teach them mm-hmm. all the things, yeah. right? But white parents often protect their children from looking at race, from looking at racism. And that sense of protection, what it does is it places my son in harm's way. It places right. other black, indigenous, and racialized children in harm's way because your white children, not your white children, but, you know, I get it. White children haven't haven't been educated, aren't having those conversations, aren't building that awareness. And so it's the responsibility of white parents to say, this is our work to do. Um, this is to, to really raise anti-racist and conscious white children that, you know, my hope is that Jaleel's white friends, um, if they go out and they hang out and they want to do something, they're 16 and 17, that his white friend doesn't say, hey, let's go do this you know, um, activity that could lead to police coming because he knows that my son Mm. could actually be imprisoned. And because of that, but most white kids don't know, which is why I have to really, um, teach my son hypervigilance so that he can say to his white friends, no, I'm not doing that. Like he doesn't do the same things that his white friends do. He doesn't have access to the same things. He can't make mistakes like his white friends can. Mm -hmm. And so that awareness and that that advocacy for other white children to sit in classrooms or in schools and say, that's not okay. Mm-hmm. And to stand up is, you know, really the call to action for white parents. Yeah. And I think there's so much value in being able to teach our kids to be empathetic and to put themselves in the shoes of somebody else to understand what it might be like to experience something different than what they have experienced previously. So, What questions do you wish people would ask you or perhaps stop asking you in regards to whiteness and white privilege and racism and anti-racism and, and all of that? Well, I'll start with the questions that I I wish white people would stop asking is how do I teach my child? When's a good time to teach my child? Well, I don't know. I started talking to my child from the minute he could talk about um, how to make sure that he can be safe and love himself in in society. I wish um, that white people would stop asking or speaking about the fact that they're scared and worried um, about making mistakes and saying the wrong thing and you know, um, really projecting a lot of that fragility on Black, Indigenous, and racialized people to comfort them, as opposed to understanding that um, Black, Indigenous, and racialized people are not comfortable having conversations around race, racism. This is not, it's not enjoyable for us. Like, I should be painting. I should be writing poetry, Um, you know, but we're, we're talking about racism and inequities in order to really, um, advocate for humanity. And it's actually not my job. Yes, I'm an anti-racism educator. So people pay me to teach them. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But it isn't my job to help you feel compelled to come to action. Like if you truly believe that Black, Indigenous, and racialized people are fully human beings Mm -hmm. and are not the other and are full, are people, um, that deserve dignity and belonging and safety and joy, then it should be a no brainer. Like this is the work that I need to do in the world because I care about humanity and because, um, you know, none of us really are free 
if all of us are, aren't free. We all must be free in order for there to be true freedom. And so, yeah, I, you know, my hope is that white folks start to stop asking me how they can be an ally. Mm-hmm. Um, because the reality is that, you know, ally really speaks to this idea that you're coming to help me. Right. right. But Sonia Renee Taylor, an incredible activist, they say, I don't want an ally because an ally means you've come here to help me. How are you helping me solve the problem you caused? Why aren't I helping you solve the problem you caused? Why am I not the ally and you the actor? Why is blackness the responsibility holder and whiteness gets to be the helper? Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's so true. And I... I've heard that quote said before, and every time I hear it, I'm just like, ugh, yes. I'm not meant to be the ally for you. I can support and I can love you. I can, I don't know, like, it's not my job to, to, to do it for you. Because. Yeah, but it's but it's bigger than that. It's more about the fact that white people need to understand that you're not here to just eradicate racism because racism makes it sound like it's this thing that's happening to black, indigenous and racialized people. Mm-hmm. We're here to dismantle white supremacy. Yes. And white supremacy impacts white people. And so when we think about white heteropatriarchy, capitalism, ableism, one has to ask themselves, how am I benefiting from oppression? Is it ethical for me to continue to benefit from oppression? Do I want to be complicit with a system and with structures um, that perpetuate harm and violence? And so white folks need to look at how am I complicit in that and how can I make sure that that is part of my life agenda and legends of really dismantling white supremacy? Yeah, that's so good. As we bring this to a close very soon... Thank you so much for what you've shared so far. I really appreciate you sharing your story. But I really want to know what is something that gives you hope for the future and what is something that you love and what is something that brings you great joy right now? Mm, Thank you. What gives me hope for the future is um, the empowering activism that I am seeing all across these stolen lands. the ways in which Indigenous people are rising up, the ways in which Black and racialized communities are rising up, the ways in which accomplices and you know community members are saying that this is my fight too. Um, I'm inspired by that. I'm inspired by the ways in which the youth get it in many ways, not all, let's be real, but there are yeah. a lot of youth that are really advocating for dismantling white supremacy, gender, binaries, and really helping us think in a futuristic way that like centers equity um, and is like decentering capitalism. So I'm really hopeful and really inspired by that. Um, and what I I love is the question, yes, that um, I, hmm, I think what I am really loving right now is the awareness that I have and the ways in which I'm able to see 
my trauma, my intergenerational trauma, the way I'm healing so many parts of myself and relationships with so many people and um, the ways in which I'm starting to really root and like ground into who I am um, and watching my son, of course, um, grow, I think is what brings me the greatest joy is seeing him live out into wanting to become a film, going into film school he wants to do in a couple of years when he goes to university and he loves to create and develop and is just kind of this futuristic creator and um, really knows himself. Um, that truly brings me deep joy. Well, thank you so much. And I really just want to remember that no matter who we are or where our story began, it is within our power to love and to be loved and to experience joy. And if there's anything that helps us to communicate with others who we see as different from us, may it be that, may it be that we are all lovely and that we all can be loved and see each other as full humans. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thank you for chatting with me. And I wish you all the best in your work and in life and creating space for yourself and for what you love and for what you enjoy and watching your son grow. So yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I was so grateful that Salem took the time to have a real and honest conversation with me. There are so many things that I am still learning and coming to understand, but this helped me to recognize my place a bit better and also what is required of me. If you have any questions or comments on this episode or need further clarification on anything you've heard, please don't hesitate to reach out in person or contact us at activelistening.life at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and reviews on iTunes are always welcome. Thanks for listening.